0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week, we share stories from athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you?
1: Qualifiers and test events and <laughs> training videos. Oh, my. There has been... So much sports this week, it feels like, Mm -hmm. in October, other than here in the U.S. We have football and the end of baseball season coming up. But it just feels like qualifiers are everywhere this week. And we've gotten just tons and tons of announcements about
0: athletes going to the Pan American Games. It's really been exciting. (laughs) Lots of news flying. (laughs) But it keeps all those sports federations on their toes, right? They are busy, busy, busy. And one of those busy people is our guest today, Shuklastani Phil Andrews. We are happy to welcome him back to the podcast. Last time we talked with Phil, he was CEO of USA Weightlifting, but in July 2022, he became CEO of USA Fencing. So we talked with Phil about his new wish role and what he hopes to see for the organization in the future. Take a listen. Phil Andrews, welcome back to the show. Last time we talked to you, you were CEO of USA Weightlifting, and now you're CEO of USA Fencing. You've been in that role for a little over a year. What's it been like?
2: Well, I put the barbell down and pick up the sword. It's lighter. <laughs> <laughs> it's a start. You asked. More seriously, fencing's a very interesting sport. Wonderful community. Very smart community. Very well-educated as a general rule. Very large in the Ivy Leagues and the Ivy-adjacent schools. A big NCAA sport. Much more focused on youth sport than weightlifting is. Weightlifting is a very adult sport, generally. Uh, it will not escape many people's attention to listen to this podcast often that we in weightlifting had one or two challenges in the international sphere with the IWF. Happily, though, I think they're making progress on that front in my former sport. Here we have some challenges, there's no question, and I'm sure we're gonna go on to talk about one or two of those coming up, but much, much less than we did in the sport of weightlifting, the FIE and IOS, which is our international federation for we call it power fencing, worldwide it's called wheelchair fencing in the Paralympic Games. One of your guests recently, Ellen Geddes, is doing really, really well and we'll expect to see her in Paris as well. So it's been a great transition. We're about 40,000 members, and so it's about double what we had at weightlifting, a little under double. Really interesting, as I say, community that that fencing has. It's a very tight-knit community, very passionate community, and very, very intelligent community like nothing I've ever seen in sport. That's not to say that sounds like I I mean other sports are not so smart. I mean that just one's particularly smart. I still didn't get that right, but still, good.
0: You do have a lot of people who go on to compete at very high-level universities, and that yes. lends itself, and it, it probably you have a different way of thinking across membership than you would for weightlifting, and the concerns are probably very different between the two.
2: Well, yes, for a number of reasons. First of all, the sport's you know, different. We fence each other. We literally go to bouts with a what is a weapon that originates in war against each other. So that's, that takes one step of personality compared to weightlifting, where you're effectively you are going to battle, but that battle is against gravity and your own mind. That's one set of, of, of different minds. So you also think about the personality of the average weightlifter and personality of the average fencer. In fencing, you're really solving problems. How do you defeat the other person? How do you get around their ability to defend themselves with their weapon? Uh, whereas in weightlifting, it's it's much more about technique and and your brute strength, obviously, to be able to lift that barbell in the best possible way that you can. And you are correct. The NCAA programs and the Ivy League, in particular, are really important to fencing. And a lot of people get into fencing in part to go into engineering, law, medical, and similar professions through financial services as well through their education that they have received as a part of their career in fencing and if you look at the amount of fencing universities out there, the majority of them are really good universities. I had a conversation with, not quite sure, but I would imagine they're a top at least 35 university in this country. Maybe a shade lower than that, I guess. And they said, we're the academic poor of fencing. And I'm sitting there at the other side of the table going, I did not go to a university anywhere close to as good as the one I'm currently sitting in. So I am the academic poor of fencing, I guess, is what I derived from that uh, conversation. I guess if they're the academic poor, I'm possibly the academic destitute of fencing.
1: Did you have any background in fencing before you showed up there?
2: I have some weird, weird associations with fencing over my life. I actually went to the top... So I went to two high schools, one St. Edmund's College, which is where I went for the majority of the time. Most people know that as Hogwarts, or at least most people see the photo of it know it as Hogwarts. It's not the actual place where Hogwarts was filmed for Harry Potter, but it looks very similar. Yes, we had houses, and I was in one that had the colors of Slytherin. But aside from that, I went to another school called Brentwood, which happened to be the largest or, I guess, best fencing school in the country. Uh, oddly, the coach from that school is now here in the U.S. in Boston. So we re-met each other in Minneapolis at one of our championships. And one of our employees here introduced me to them. Where are you from? I'm from Chelmsford. Oh, so am I. And we deduced who each other were over that period of time. And then I actually worked with a national team fencer when I was at the University of East London before I came over to this country who is still in touch with the fencing community here, national team U.S. fencer. In a video in the run-up to the London 2012 Games, there's actually a video of me fencing him as part of the promotional effort for that. So though I've never been a fencer in earnest, I've had some odd associations with fencing over a number of years, coming into my Olympic and Paralympic life, if you like. That said, it wasn't, if you said, have you been a fencer? No. But I have done more of it than I had weightlifting before I got involved there.
1: What's your weapon of choice?
2: I love watching sabre. I've done more fencing in Epe, but Sabre's the one I like to show up and watch.
0: When you started watching fencing really in earnest for the job, how long did it take you to be able to see something like Right of Way?
2: That's an interesting question. Right of Way specifically, bear in mind I'm doing this pretty intensely because effectively I watch fencing every day in some way, shape, or form, even if it's not live, maybe two to three months.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. When you're watching a lot of fencing. Yeah, that's one of the challenges, I think, for spectators. And maybe it is. Is that a challenge? Is that a challenge for you as a leader trying to get more people into the sport or more people to watch the sport?
2: It is. And I think the question is, to what extent do you need to understand the nth degree of detail to enjoy a good fencing bout? And I think my initial advice to people watching fencing for the first time is just enjoy what you're watching. And the people around you will tell you the score. They don't necessarily, you don't necessarily need to be tremendously intricate with the details of the rules. It's ideal if you are, and it's great. And great if you can sit next to somebody who can explain some of that to you. But do you need that to enjoy your first exposure to fencing? No. Enjoy the the spectacle first. And then go and see if you started with Sabre, for example, go look at some foil, go look at some Epe. Okay, what looks interesting? What do you want to know more about? Because if you try to learn all three at once, you're going to be drinking from the fire hose.
1: What kind of challenges were presented to you when you first walked in the door?
2: So fencing had a challenging time during the pandemic. As a national governing body, we went through some governance issues, some safe sport issues, some staff turnover issues. Uh, Our revenue was a challenge. Fencing, interestingly enough, not through the sport, but through the cost of doing business. So in other words, the travel commitment. Fencing competes more overseas than at least any other sport that I'm aware of. Uh, And that cost is enormous on people. So both the domestic travel that you need to do to go to North American Cups or NACs as we call them, And then the international travel to go to Cadet and Junior World Cups or Senior World Cups is enormous, both on the people who are self-funding, generally at the younger ages, and even the top athletes who we're funding. That cost is enormous. So in order to keep up the pace of the cost, you've got to keep up the pace of the revenue. And that's been uh, some of the bigger challenges. Uh, So there was a lot of, through those governance and safe sport issues in particular, there was a lot of mistrust of usa fencing and a lot of wounds that needed to be healed and still do so a lot of that came down to what do we do to bring the community a little bit more together what do we do to bring the community a little bit closer between quotation marks usa fencing and the the community and how do we get away from the mindset of there being a usa fencing and the community separately we're all kind of USA fencing all as once. I mean, ultimate national governing bodies, in my mindset, are membership organizations, you might want to think about your members. So that is a collective good for one of our terminology is it was the challenge.
1: Okay, we gotta talk about the safe sport issue. We have to talk a little bit about about Alan Hadzik. Yeah. You walked into this. This was not under your watch, and yet this ended up on your desk. Yeah. How do you start dealing with something that you inherit
2: like that? I think there's two sides to it. There's the side of let's own what happened. Some people went through an incredibly challenging experience as their, as part of their participation in our sport. We need to stop thinking about whose fault it was and start thinking about what we can do about it. Their USA fencing were not the ones making the decision or the ones delaying the process. That was the US Center for Safe Sport. We can't do anything about that. So let's figure out how we just own. We have an issue in USA fencing around abuse. We need to figure out that issue. We need to make sure that to the extent we can, people are protected in our sport. To the extent we can, well, that isn't even to the extent we can. We need to make sure people can come forward and report issues when they arise and we're ready to respond to them. And people have confidence in our ability to respond. So, you know, the Alan issue shouldn't just be about Alan Hasdick. It should be about, okay, what can we learn from this issue, which clearly went wrong, both in the fact that Alan was able to do what he did and also in the, res- more perhaps more importantly than that, in the response to that, why it took so many years, why it took so many years after the incident to even there to begin to be something to be done why the process in place allowed Alan to continue to participate in sport for as long as he did. And I say that, by the way, with a recognition that there is still an arbitration process underway in in that particular case. But yeah, it wasn't under my watch but I'm still running the organization which it affected and the community that it affected. And I think there's two ways you can look at that. You can either go, okay, this wasn't any of my problem. Let's move on with life. Or you can just go, this is part of what happened in fencing. It's part of the culture of fencing and that we need to face head on and go, we either have a problem we don't. And let's just be honest and say, yes, we have an issue that we need to address when it comes to, Potential abuse in this sport. And it's not just Alan. There's other cases as well. they are a minority. There are a very, 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 very small minority. But we need to address it.
1: So one of the issues with that was the Tokyo team did not mm-hmm. feel heard. And now you're taking over. You've got these elite fencers who don't feel heard by their community. Do you literally sit down with them? I mean, how did you address this on a more personal level?
2: I'm not going to suggest I've spoken to every single member of the Tokyo team about the specific issue. I've spoken to some of them, and certainly some of them who are front and center of the issue. And you know, to your point, it is about hearing them. What was their experience? And being, again, honest about where we can do something about an issue and where we can't. And this is not deflective. It's just part of where the process is today. The process needs to be better. There's not a lot that USA fences specifically... Could do about a lot of the issues that happened specifically in Tokyo, in part because for those I'd imagine most people listening understand this, but to this particular podcast. But basically, the Olympic Games itself is pretty much the jurisdiction of the US Olympic and Paralympics Committee. Whereas an FIA event, Federation International There's Scream, those events are more our jurisdiction there's still relationships in both cases but if you like the senior body deciding who gets to go and owning that delegation is different for those events which is why i make that distinction so there was a limited amount that usa fencing could potentially have done better in terms of our own relationship with elite athletes and i will say that some of the staff who are still here that are actually valued by our elite athletes are, interestingly enough, our sports performance team. So who are the ones closest to the athletes? Again, I'm not suggesting USA Fencing got everything right. But what I am suggesting is this is where we have to listen to those athletes and not just those athletes. We also need to listen to our wider community, particularly those who have suffered in the face of abuse. And what can we do better in our reaction? How can we be more open to reports? How can we put more pressure into the right places who can do something, both in terms of the process, but also specific cases to drive towards outcomes in in a better, faster, more efficient way so that those people get justice? And on the other hand, not not specific to, to Alan, for those people who are held up in limbo who are on the, if you like, responding party side too. They are also owed a reasonably efficient process that needs to happen. To your question, though, really, all you can do is listen. There is no way to turn back the hand of time. There's no way to go back to what was already a very challenging games. We, I, I went through that same experience with Tokyo with all the challenges that are outside of this Alan Hazdick issue. And it was already a tough place to be. It was already a tough games. It was already a, a games where most athletes had their experience ripped away from them through no fault of their own. And then you had this. But on top, yeah, that's a rough experience to start with. Before you've not feel, before you feel like you've not been heard, and that's a reasonable feeling.
1: Okay, let's go from one controversy to another. Sure. You know, Why not? Let's keep it tough here, Phil. The relationship between USA fencing and FIE, you know, you Uh came from weightlifting where the national federation and the international federation had some issues. Let's put it quietly that way. What's happening with FIE and USA fencing?
2: So look, the FIE and USA fencing have have overall a very good relationship, interestingly enough, where we have some somewhat differing views is the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And that's where you've seen USA Fencing, in partnership with a number of European bodies, of course, not least the Ukrainian Federation, advocate for a retention on the ban on Russian participation and Belarusian participation in an FIE event. We maintain that's where we'd like to be, but ultimately, we as a group lost the vote at the Congress. So the FIE has now allowed. Uh, Russian athletes and Belarusian athletes to qualify through the AIN process, the neutral athlete process. Overall, my view is that's been done relatively well. There is an American on the ex-co of the FIE and uh, COMEX, it's called, in in fencing. And there's uh, the same American sits on the working group for that particular process. Uh, It's fairly well known that that there was a letter that we wrote to the FIE pointing out that there was a number of athletes who may not qualify under the recommended, recommended requirements for being a neutral athlete. To be quite fair, I've seen that adhere to fairly well. Does that mean that we agree that they should be able to compete? No. We still maintain that Russia and Belarus should not be participating, but in the event that they have... The rules have been adhered to, I'll give them that, and adhered to well. So overall, it's a a decent relationship. We are continuing to host FIE events. In the United States, we have the World Veteran Championship coming up in just less than a month, and then the foil Grand Prix next month. And you're about to tell me, yeah, but in weightlifting, you also hosted some world championships, and you're right. So it's – and these relationships are always complex. And and what I've learned over the years is – First of all, you can disagree respectfully, number one. Two, not every person is all good and not every person is all bad. I I really learned that along the way. And three, these are very complex organizations with a lot of pressure put on them. I don't know the last time I came on, whether it was during the sort of heat of everything with COVID and with the IWF and whether I was inside the IWF at that point, but That also gives me an additional perspective that I didn't have in my days before that at weightlifting from the international side. And so I'm not necessarily defending the FIE on this, but I'm just trying to give a balance of, yes, we disagreed with the the general FIE position of inclusion of Russia and Ukraine, and we still disagree. But I will say that they've kept their word when they said we will adjudicate This, according to the rules set down by the IOC, teams are out. They are doing a decent job of looking at the military athletes. But do we think they should be competing, Russia and and Belarus? Absolutely not.
1: Have any of your athletes expressed intent or thought of boycotting matches?
2: It's been discussed. I believe we have had AIN opponents. I may be incorrect in saying that, but I believe we faced at least one at Worlds. I'd have to double check that fact. As you know, there was obviously Ukraine neutral athlete matchup, and I'd be surprised if that wasn't on your list to talk about, because that ha- that's a separate issue to what we addressed first. And there has been discussion about that. Certainly, we've had some discussions about what insignia might be appropriate to show support for the Ukrainian athletes. Uh, both myself, one of our athletes, Kat Holmes, A couple more cats was the one behind this. Uh, We donated to the Ukrainian fund um, on a per-touch basis. Uh, Kat did that through her participation in Grand Prix and World Cups. I did something called Fence with Phil at one of our nacs and matched a donation both to USA Fencing's foundation, but also to the Ukrainian uh, effort. Our foil team wore some insignia right after the decision was made and that was appreciated by the Ukrainian athletes. There are some athletes who have discussed boycotts. Here's the challenge. If you boycott a match or a bout, you then essentially forfeit that bout, and theoretically could be given a a ban or suspension for that, which affects directly your ability and potentially Team USA's ability to qualify for Paris. So I think on the whole... There is a a general thought that the, it, it's not – no easy way of saying worth boycotting and protesting in that way. And There might be better and more efficient ways to, to protest that. The discussions I had with a couple of athletes on that talked about the only way that that might really make a splash and makes fundamental change is if very significant amounts of athletes, not just Americans – all boycotted together. And you're seeing athlete-based change happening perhaps in the most extreme example and a very different subject matter in Spain. If you look at the protest and very reasonable protest in my eyes of the Spanish national team, the Spanish women's national team, which essentially caused their head coach to be fired and then the resignation of the president of the federation, woefully too late in my opinion but at least it happened it was really because the athletes said look we're not playing as long as this guy's there and in order for there truly to be an athlete-based movement on changing that rule it would probably need that volume of a significant amount of athletes from multiple countries to say we just don't agree with this decision and there might be some who don't feel that way too and say, yeah, okay, this decision, I'll fence whoever I need to fence. Thank you very much. I'm not so interested in this decision. I think the average athlete that I spoke to, though, cares deeply and very much feels that that Russian and and Belarusian athletes should not be competing in FIA events right now. You know, several months now removed from that decision. I think there's at this point getting on for close to six months, I believe, since that decision was taken. And through a world championships, I think there's a general thought process that we are where we are with that decision. It's been made, it's a closed issue, and we need to just fence and get our best. Whoever comes up against us, we'll take him down.
1: And it's so complex because both Russia and Ukraine are powerhouses in the sport. Correct. These are not just, there's a couple athletes here and there. I mean, these are your your gold medal favorites coming into these competitions.
2: It's Bill and Belarus as well, but Belarus is not a, a superpower in this sport. But Ukraine and Russia very much, and of course the the presidents of both Olympic committees actually fenced on the same team together in ninety two as part of the unified team. Plus the president of the IOC is a fencer. So there's a lot of politics involved here and a lot of sensitivity. Plus, you know, ultimately If you think about where uh, individual athletes, but athletes with a passport that says either Russian Federation or or Belarus, might come up against each other, we're we're one of the very few sports based upon effectively a weapon that's used in in a combat situation. You know, archery rifle is where you're going to see that. So... There's a lot of sensitivities and a lot of different ways that are attached to fencing specifically when it comes to the Russia-Ukrainian conflict, and a lot of very sensitive issues at the very highest echelons of, if one of the terminology, sport politics. Plus, of course, Arashir Uzmanov was the president of the FIE until this conflict and has stepped aside as a result of the conflict in order that, because of the, the sanctions held against him, along with most Russian IF presidents, and Belarusian IF presidents, there wasn't he, but if there was, I'm sure the same would have applied, with the exception of Kremlev at boxing. I think he's the only one who didn't step aside. But again, I'm I'm not going to open another can of worms and <laughs> spill them everywhere, so because that's a whole different kettle of fish. But it is. You're right. It's a sensitive subject in our sport. They are large people, and I think as well on a personal level, I've not been involved in fencing for long enough and this necessarily to affect me, but athletes have. Athletes have often been competing for 5, 10, 15, sometimes 20 years against these same athletes. And so coaches certainly have been there and they've competed against these same people. They've been on teams in some cases with these same people who might be Russian coaches who have come to different countries, including the United States, Ukrainian coaches who've come to different countries, including the United States. And they are now facing challenging internal decisions in a way because how do you feel about this when you know the people personally and you may not have a problem with them personally but you fundamentally have a problem with russian and Belarusian participation or you may not depending on the person so that's very very challenging for some of these athletes and some of the the coaches and and indeed the administrators around the world because you've got to separate issue from person.
1: Let's go to happier things. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to keep you there forever.
2: I (laughs) mean, it's kind of where, I mean, you're right. I kind of hung out in a sport which had a lot of problems and then was like, let's go to this one where there's this Russia-Ukraine thing going on. And (laughs) what is the most sensitive sport to that? Oh, fencing! I'll show up there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe next you should go to Gymnastics.
2: You know, I would have absolutely loved to have been at gymnastics. That was actually when everything happened with gymnastics. Obviously, I wish that hadn't happened, but it was actually my dream job because what a place you could go and impact people's lives and impact the way that sport is done, the way that 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 sport is taught across the country, the way it's delivered to young girls and boys in in gymnastics gyms around, around the nation. I actually think Lee Lee's done a reasonably good job in very challenging circumstances and she's had a very very tough job to get there and i know not everyone agrees with that perspective but i think if it was me no one not everyone would agree i would have done a great job either so that was actually my dream job at the time i i I hope no national governing body finds themselves in the state the usa gymnastics was but if there is that's the sort of challenge i'd like to take on
0: okay so since we're still there (laughs) <laughs> uh, I tried for you Phil I know you tried I, I want to go back to the abuse thing a little bit and how when you're dealing with a sport that a lot of kids start out in yeah. and you're at, how do you create change in the, the culture are you working on creating change in the culture to prevent this in the future or really tamp it down or make it safe for children to be able to speak out
2: yeah. And I think the, the, the short answer to that question is yes. The longer answer is it's very complex. It's not one single thing that will solve culture change, that will solve abuse or that will solve the, the longstanding trust that goes into in, in individual sports like gymnastics, fencing and others, which can but does not always foster a potential abusive situation. And what I mean by that is, in in general, trusting your coach is not a bad thing. Coaches are inherently not bad people. Most coaches. Going to sport to make a difference. It's something they're either truly passionate about and want to teach others. Or in some cases, and especially you see this perhaps most in high school sport uh, or youth club sport where you have people coaching multiple things, they just want to make a difference. That's it. That's all they went in to do. Those coaches... Are not the problem. They should be fostered. They should be celebrated, and I think that's that's one thing that's got lost a little bit in this whole issue. Is it's become black and white. Like coaches bad, athletes good. Well, okay. First of all, there's athlete and athlete abuse. That's a problem. Got to solve too, and it's a serious problem that'll solve. Second of all, ninety nine percent of coaches really fantastic. One percent of coaches bad, and that's the bit that we need to change. And there is culture about it. There is also a weeding out those coaches issue. So a few things here. Number one, most importantly, make reporting a priority. Make responding to those reports a priority. That's probably the most single most important thing you do. Two reasons. One, people start trusting the ability to make a report. That's fundamental. But two, the moment you seem to be actually doing something about it, people are going to think twice before they commit abusive acts when they're doing it as a deliberate... Act. And what I mean by that is it's not something they've learned to do in the way that they, uh, they are or the way they coach. And more, you're talking about the emotional side at that point. If you're doing a deliberative act, mostly in the, in the sexual abuse side, you are got to think twice if you know that it's really easy to report. You know, for example, for us – you can write an email. You can write, fill out a form. You can do that with your name. You can do that anonymously. You can send a text message. You can do that anonymously. We can text you back without even knowing who you are because we've got a system that does that. You can find somebody at an event. You can report to a regional safe sport court. There's a ton of ways that you can get your message to someone who will do something about it. And so that is a th- it's called in um, – I learned this back in 12 – it's called the theater of security. So in other words, putting up layers beyond which people have to think about the actions that they're taking. So that's probably the, one of the things you can do relatively quickly and relatively effectively. Culture change takes much longer. Culture change takes time. It takes education. It takes dealing with challenging issues. It takes honest conversations. It takes making feel people feel comfortable. It takes education of the coaches, the education of parents and athletes of what they should expect from their coaches and from also the other people around them, athletes and athletes too, team uh, camaraderie. So I, I feel like I've given you a wishy-washy answer here, Jill, and that wasn't my intent. But basically, you have to keep paying attention to it and drawing the attention of your community to it, of this is an issue that we need to address. We need to act the sport we want to be, not the sport we have been, perhaps is the best way of phrasing it. And I think that's what you're seeing in some of these individual sports where the culture is moving along and changing into one of more as a supportive culture. And, and I've spoken about this before. I've said, look, if you compare this to some of the famous stories around the world, I find that in motivating athletes, two ways of working are effective in producing results. One is the... Hair dryer treatment extreme pushing end of things it's effective it gets results should you do it i'm not saying you should i'm saying gets results the other end of that is the extreme support model and that also gets results somewhere in the middle doesn't necessarily get the results but the extreme stick and the extreme carrots do and, and my example i always give is in soccer if you look at Louis Van Gaal, or you look at Sir Alex Ferguson, incredibly successful managers who are known for their aggressive management of their teams. And then you look at Jurgen Klopp, the Liverpool Football Club, known for his team camaraderie, his positive, uplifting way, supportive way that he manages his team. Also known for being super successful, Guardiola, same way. So two examples over here that work. Two examples over here that work. Both incredibly successful. I know which one I prefer.
0: Uh, We're yeah. smarter than that, Allison.
1: <laughs> no, you have to. No, it was perfect. I'm teasing myself because I'm like, I know what he means, but I just don't know who these people
2: are. I, mean, I can so give you a gymnastics-related one. No. Uh, I mean, I will say though, and probably I'll give you the good gymnastics one at least. Val, Coach Val, I've had her speak on this very subject, and I think she's a fantastic reference point for. You know, an uplifting, positive culture in sports. And to her credit, this is something she speaks about very openly. And one person I think that we as American sports and American coaches can hold up as a shining example of what a coach should be.
1: So let's talk about success because the US team, U.S. team had a very good world championships.
2: We did. Fantastic.
1: Yeah. So was it expected? Was it a surprise? Where did it fall for you? Of course, you're going to say, of course, we knew we would do well. But Oh, you-
2: yeah, we knew exactly what was going to happen.
1: But was that a bit of a surprise how well you did? It
2: was. It was. You know, let me first be clear. Well done, Eli Dershowitz. Let's start there. Eli did phenomenally well. He is the world champion. He's the second man from the United States ever to win a world championships. That is absolutely awesome. Did we necessarily expect that waking up that morning? I don't know about Eli Dershowitz, but I didn't. And perhaps I should have done clearly i should have um but he was determined the look on his face that day it it was all mental game and and there was no stopping him and he didn't do it the easy way either he went through the world number one the world number two i think it was the world number four he traveled the, the hard journey to get to that final and then subsequently win it it was a wonderful wonderful spectacle to watch it happens to be my favorite weapon to watch so the additional Late evening, that that called for was was great. I was there in person to to watch it. it, and it just it was quite the performance. And that's in well done to his coaches, obviously everyone supporting him. But wow, Eli Dershowitz, that's period. Wow, uh, men's men's saber generally actually did really well. Women's saber did did rather well. Ironically, we were we were knocked out in women's sabre's team competition by an Olga Karlen led Ukrainian team which I, 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 I applauded, but at the same time was found an interesting factoid. Uh, foil, you, know, you can't take a thing away from Lee Kiefer. We obviously picked up another medal for Nick Itkin. Uh, so overall, really good worlds. We are, we're now in a place where we weren't 10 years ago, where especially in foil is an expectation upon US fencing. In Sabre, that's now perhaps starting to be the case perhaps not so much in men's foil as it is in women's foil because of course mariel zagunis but you know our our young women's foil team led by magda is really quite promising they they could do damage in 24 i think they're really a team that we should be looking for in 28 and men's saber you know again they've had some really good results recently and i don't want to necessarily up the pressure dial on them more than it already has by well, their own fantastic results, perhaps with the exception of Eli. I mean, you can't grumble about someone winning a world championship right coming into an Olympic Games. Was it a surprise? Yeah. Uh, and did I think it was particularly good on a partisan Italian soil, which will be just as intense next year in France, where France is one of the world's leading nations in this sport? And we're going to go right up against likely a very largely French crowd will want the French to win and expect the French to win. Italy was the same way. So if Eli can do it there, I'm not suggesting that we should make him the gold medal favorite, but if he wakes up with the same mentality he did in Milan, then he's going to do a lot of damage in Paris as well.
1: So how as an organization do you balance momentum and pressure?
2: I think if I'm really honest with you, I'm still learning that. I think I made some mistakes with our team at weightlifting that No, I look back and we had that momentum that came in and we had these amazing results coming out of Kate Nye and Maddie Rogers and Jordan Dela Cruz. And I was sure, absolutely sure, that Jordan Dela Cruz would be the first medal for Team USA in Tokyo, period. Not just for weightlifting, but for for Team USA. And Jordan Dela Cruz to that day had had exactly zero bomb outs. And on that day, she bombed out. And I think I made a mistake in, and we as an organization made a mistake, but ultimately I let that organization in shouting a little too loudly about our chances in Tokyo. And that put too much pressure on our athletes. It came from a place of good intent, but it was not the right move. And so, you know, it's a little bit why I'm a little less bullish about Eli's phenomenal achievements that I think we have to keep in context. Yes, we have double world number ones in foil. That's really awesome. And we have the current reigning world champion in Saber. But, you know, let's go into Paris and see what happens. It's not an easy thing to balance those two things. I mean, the best example, perhaps, is is Simone Biles, the literal greatest of all time. And she ran into challenges in Tokyo. And those challenges were, it was yes, it was the twisties, but it was also associated with pressure. And to a degree, that's a lot of factors around an athlete that contribute or don't contribute to pressure. I think I'll say this, though, and and one of the things that that when I talk to our athletes, and being a slightly larger organization, I am less involved day to day with our athletes here than I was in, in weightlifting. But I think one of the key messages is it doesn't matter what happens in Paris. 12 years ago, taking London or or 08, we'd have been absolutely thrilled with the amount of athletes we qualify to the Games, and equally as thrilled with one medal. There's countries out there who would be thrilled with one medal. Entire countries. And so for us, what happens, happens. And, 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 like I say, that, you know, I, I don't have a good answer for you on that because I'm not sure I've learned what that good answer is. Because, on one hand, I absolutely want to recognize how phenomenal some of these athletes are and what they're doing week in, week out at World Cups and Grand Prix is. But at the same time, I don't want that pressure to build to the point where if I don't come home with an Olympic medal, I'm a failure. No.
0: I have a question related to that and I can't figure out how to say it. But in the sense of USA Fencing has instituted some mental health. Opportunities yeah. Oh, yeah. for for the athletes. Do you find that that helps them balance some of this pressure? Or, you know, it, it's it's hard. I'm still trying to find out what I want to say because it's an interesting to see you try to change your approach to like the excitement about the Olympics, which is the the pinnacle. Yeah, for the sport and for a lot of but also understanding the immense amount of pressure an event that big brings to athletes and, and yeah, trying to make it fun and exciting versus like, Oh, you better get a medal or. or Yeah. And and
2: some of those things are almost opposing Jill in nature. Right. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, and I think building culture of support around people is, is really important, but also making sure that support isn't overbalancing into almost cheerleading and and, because sometimes it's appropriate. Sometimes people need that. Sometimes they want a little bit of pressure but it's balancing all of those things in the melting pot is really not easy and you know we i've always been of the viewpoint of extreme support versus extreme pressure is the or extreme stick we talked about already is the right way to go and i think you've heard that from me before and hopefully you've seen it but you know in balancing those things out yes the mental health offerings are important but it's more important to get the whole atmosphere right and Frankly, and you know, to, to Alison's point earlier, it, the atmosphere in Tokyo wasn't right. It wasn't conducive to performance because you've got to worry about this issue that's happening over here. It certainly takes away from the pressure on you to perform because ultimately everyone's distracted by that issue. But you know, it's not the ideal scenario for an athlete by any stretch of the imagination from a mental space perspective or frankly, from a physical perspective either. So, yes, mental health is an important part of that, a big part of that. But it's also it's not just the mental health offerings of here's someone you can talk to. It's the mental health care in terms of I care about you as a human being, as opposed to I care about the medal you bring or do not bring home. And by the way, the worst place in the world is not fourth place at the Olympic Games in most sports. It's also the one who doesn't make it because they were next to the team and those people actually get forgotten more often and need outreach they need support honestly people need to know that they're cared about and they're cared about either way
0: you mentioned marielle zagunas Mm -hmm. it's been 10 almost 10 years since she won gold are you starting to see a legacy in like growth in women's fencing due to her
2: yes women's fencing is growing Yes, women's fencing in Sabre perhaps particularly is growing, though I don't necessarily know because a lot of the the weapon of choice is partly based upon, well, what clubs are near me and what do they teach? So there's certainly a legacy in in Oregon. Uh, If you look at, at Magda, for example, Magda is basically from Oregon. She's lived in Colorado as well, where her dad, Adam, her coach, Adam, has lived. But Magda is also from Oregon. That's not coincidental. And there's certainly a legacy of people coming behind Marielle who've been inspired by Marielle. Marielle still does quite a lot in the behind the scenes, for want of better terminology, to spread women's fencing. She's still an ambassador. Award for service to growing women's fencing is named in her honor. We created that award last year as part of encouragement to grow women's fencing. But I'll be honest, We still don't have enough women's fences. We're nowhere close to 50-50. We're nowhere close to parity. It's not good enough. It needs to be more. It needs to be more effort placed upon bringing more women into the sport at all levels, athletes, coaches, referees, and so forth. That's not to take a thing away from the efforts that have been made successfully or from Marielle, but it needs work. It needs more people, more Effort placed on it, more funding as well placed behind it. And it's something that we need to focus on is bringing more women into the sport of fencing. That's again, we have some phenomenal human beings. We have Marielle Zagunis, now we have Lee Kiefer, who's making an impact today. Yes, there has been an impact. Yes, there has been an uptick. Is it directly related to Marielle? I, I, it's got to be in part, right? There's no way that someone of that level of success, who you know, at the very least this, she set a culture of winning. That's really, really important when you change the trajectory of performance in the Olympic Games of a federation. You need to do that. Back, you guys talked to me, my weightlifting days a fair bit. And so, you know, part of the reason we went to some some lower down tournaments was to do that, was to set that culture of winning. And CJ Cummings made that impact in weightlifting and that fed through the entire program. And I think Marial's win has done that in fencing because to my point about Eli Dershowitz, Eli Dershowitz obviously isn't a female fencer, but he woke up that morning and was absolutely sure he could win the world championship. I'd argue that as good as Eli is, his belief, his sheer unadulterated belief that he could win probably doesn't exist without Marielle Zagunis because that culture of winning and culture of belief that you can do it really came from her.
1: So we had Ellen Geddes on, wheelchair fencing is growing, it but is. how do you help it grow?
2: It's Wheelchair fencing, or para-fencing as we call it, is a real challenge. And like women's fencing we just talked about, it's somewhere that absolutely needs to grow. Fencing generally needs to go right. Sabre is the smallest weapon. That needs to grow. Women's fencing is well under 50%. That needs to grow. Para-fencing is in a materially just different spot. There's 40,000 fencers active in the US, and there's less than 100 para-fencers. So that tells you the challenge. And there's a few reasons and a few issues. Ellen herself only really found fencing through the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. And very kindly, she actually fenced me in foil there. She was the first fencer I fenced in foil. And she took two hours out of her day to teach me all about fencing and para-fencing. And I was really appreciative of that. Ellen has obviously become arguably a world-class para-fencer. She's a Paralympian. She's right now in place to go again. And she's picked up a few medals along the way over the last couple of years, and, and she's she's doing really well. We need more of her, and we need more of her her colleagues, uh, men and women, uh, across all of the different classifications, A, B, and C, as well. So there's there's a few challenges that exist and don't exist in other sports. One is cost of frames. So it costs about five thousand dollars for a frame set. So not every fencing club in the country has a para fencing setup. And some feasibly cannot set one up because they're not accessible enough as a club. There's a club, for example, I visited in Boston, which is at the top of a very old building. Uh, it's a wonderful club, very nice club. But even if I paid for their power of fencing frames, there'll be no point because you can't get to them. So it's it, it, there's some issues there. A second issue is in para-fencing, you typically fence two of three weapons. You sometimes throw three weapons. So Ellen will usually compete in, in foil and epee, though I wouldn't necessarily want to fence her in saber either. So in that case, you need to have a club that knows how to coach somebody in more than one weapon. Okay, that's overcomable. And you need clubs who will focus on that outreach. So I think one of the things we've got to do is accept that para fencing is just a different spot of its evolution than able-bodied fencing, meaning that we need to put effort primarily into bringing people into the front door, particularly ahead of Los Angeles, where we will have host country spots for not just athletes, but also for referees and for armorers and for classifiers. And all of those people need development between now and 28. And it, we just talked about Marielle Zagunis, and, and that's a, probably a, you know, a good analogy. Pre-Marielle Zagunis fencing is was still probably stronger than where para is today, but para needs a lot of help and work to become the sort of powerhouse you're seeing from, from GB, for example. We can learn a lot from Great Britain, so to a degree Italian uh, and French para fencing, Hungarian para fencing, all strong and additional strong powerhouses uh, in the able-bodied side of the sport, too. GB is a more interesting one for me because they're not necessarily a powerhouse in the able-bodied side of the sport, but done really well at producing para fences. This year, we we took on our first full-time para fencing manager who's there just to concentrate on how do I make para fencing better in this country? But we've got to put more, again, more time and energy required in that area to bring it up to the same level that we're seeing in able-bodied fencing. And that starts with People being able to get into a chair in the first place and be able to fence and, and knowing that's an option to them if they do want to explore para sport in general. And in para sport, they, there is the opportunity to try a sport and perhaps move to another one. Rick Swager, who's one of our athletes on our national team, started, for example, in wheelchair basketball and swapped over to fencing because he slighted a little bit more. That's OK. You can do that.
1: Can we just clone Baby Vio? And send her to every country? Just everyone gets their own of her?
2: Well, yeah, there's that possibility too. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's helpful, but you know, interestingly, we talked about that. The program there was good as it was. The program there was helped in the same way we were helped by Marielle.
0: What are you excited for for Paris? Besides the fact that fencing is just going to be an amazing location.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, Paris Paris for fencing is pretty cool. We have the best venue in the Olympic Games. We have the perhaps best in terms of the the home sport advantage, if you like, where people are going to be like they were for karate and judo and other native Japanese sports in Tokyo before, of course, the, the spectators weren't allowed, like it was for cycling in, in London and rowing. It's that special crown that you're going to see in Paris. And I am going to say, I know you said besides, but sorry, that's certainly one I think we should be excited about. And then, you know, I'm actually really excited about Women's Sabre because I think that's a team that's really interesting for the future, for what we're going to do in 28. And maybe they'll pull off a surprise in Paris that we can have a fun time celebrating just like we're celebrating Men's sabers victories in Milan but yes we have some great chances in foil but I'm really excited about that young up and coming women's sabre team and seeing what they do between now and Paris in Paris and then what the future holds for them going into Los Angeles
0: well thank you so much been great talking with you as always
2: you guys too appreciate you having me on it's really been fun and I I listen I, I won't say I get every episode but I listen to the majority and this is one of the best podcasts for the olympics out there so oh, thank try you.
1: thank, thank you. you
0: hold on thank you so much phil you can follow phil on instagram he's a.phil and he is a good follow on linkedin as well we will have links to both of those in the show notes a reminder that this weekend we will be at the olympin show at Uh, the Hotel MDR in Marina del Rey. That's October 12th through the 15th, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So if you are in the area, please come down and see us.
1: We have fancy new pins to show people.
0: It's very exciting. We'll have a whole bunch of stuff and we'll have a lot of our pin friends around. It's going to be a great event. So we would love to see you there. And we will have a Kickstarter coming up. Pretty soon. It's going to be in a few weeks.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) The weather gets colder and the
0: Kickstarter gets hotter. Right. We will be having a Kickstarter to help cover some of the costs for Paris 2024. As I spent a chunk of this morning wiring money somewhere, (laughs) I hope it went to the right bank. (laughs) Somewhere in France, someone has your money. (laughs) Right. The bills are coming due and the costs are real, and we are working on getting there and we will need your support to make it happen. Uh, also, thank you to our patrons. If you'd like to become a supporter, that's flamelifepod.com support. Patrons will be getting a new bonus episode coming up soon. We've been doing rule changes that you can look forward to in Paris 2024. So we'll have another one of those episodes ready to go soon. And if uh, you aren't able to give money right now, that's fine. We need support in other ways too. One of the big ones is signing up for and reading our weekly newsletter, which is an excellent read, I think, because it gives another take on the theme for each week. You can sign up at flamealivepod.com. Just scroll to the bottom and look for the newsletter sign up. That sound means it is time for our history moment. All year long, we've been looking at Seoul 1988, as it is the 35th anniversary of those games. Allison,
1: it is your turn for story. What do you've got? I'm going to talk a little bit about fencing. No surprise here. It was an interesting competition, but not in the usual way that we talk about some of these competitions. At the time, fencers were looking for new ways to cheat. Oh, really? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So in 1976, modern pentathlete Boris Onoshenko had souped up his epe to be able to fool the electronic scoring system. So I do remember would, this. Right. So that it would score a touch when he hadn't touched. But that was specifically in the weapon itself. Mm-hmm. By the 80s, a system was devised where it wasn't in the weapon. It was, say, in the hands of the coach. It was away from the actual fencer so that they could touch two wires together and it would score a point. Wow. Accusations were made at the 84 Olympics that this was happening, but thankfully did not make an appearance in 88. It was a very short-lived controversy in fencing.
0: Thank thank goodness. I, I don't know if I could deal with another controversy
1: coming out of Seoul. Poor Seoul. I know. Much more common than touching two wires together was something called bout dumping. And we had come across this in table tennis in later Olympics, where fencers were purposely losing matches to gain uh, a, a better spot in the pool rounds. Well, the 80s, it became a group effort and fencers, even from different countries, were being accused of ganging up less popular fencers or Eastern Bloc countries would gang up on Western Europe or for political purposes. Okay, Okay. so how did this play out for the competition? Yes, so Americans and Canadians both claimed that this was happening in Seoul, that the Eastern Bloc countries were ganging up on the North American fencers. Nothing was ever proven. The Americans and Canadians backed down, showed it, and the, the issue went away. And it seems to have just disappeared from the sport, at least in terms of how people talked about it. So whether bout dumping will be an issue we see in the future, who knows? Hmm. So th- lots of accusations at Seoul, but nothing untoward. Exactly. There were some happy things in, happening in Seoul. In their last appearance at the Summer Olympics, West Germany won the most gold medals and the most total medals in all of the fencing disciplines with a total sweep of women's foil. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sweden's Kirsten Palm competed in the last of her seven Olympics in individual foil and Pavel Kolobov was part of the bronze winning Soviet Epee team. He would have been forgotten as a fencer. But he later became Russia's representative to the anti doping agency. Oh. And his last meeting with WADA was November 2015 when WADA declared Russia non compliant. Wow. Wow. How the sword is extended throughout <laughs> the sport. <laughs> Welcome to Shukhlastan.
0: It is the time of the show where we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests of the show, as well as listeners who make up our citizenship of our very own country, Shukflistan. Lots of sports in action.
1: Lots of sports. So, Luca Jones finished fifth at the Canoe Slalom Test event, but she won her first World Cup title in the Kayak Cross.
0: Yeah! Both Kelly Chang and Betsy Flint, with their respective partners, finished on top of their pools at the Beach Volleyball World Championships in Mexico.
1: Semifinals
0: and finals continue this weekend.
1: Alan Geddes finished ninth in foil at the Wheelchair Fencing World Championships in Turney, Italy.
0: Archivist Terry Hedgepeth has left her role at, at the archives of Madison Square Garden and will be the new archives program manager for Boston Children's Hospital.
1: Oh, I know where she'll be. That's a great part of town. <laughs> Don McLeod's documentary Conviction, The Steve Jentner Story, has been named a semifinalist at the Phoenix Short Film Festival for October.
0: And we have several Shuklastanis representing Team USA at the Pan American Games. That includes breaker Sonny Choi, Karate Ka, Tom Scott, speed, this will be inline skating for Aaron Jackson, sailors Stephanie Roble and Maggie Shea, shooter Tim Sherry, Taekwondo competitor. Madeline Gorman, Shore, Jordan Gray, who will be competing in the heptathlon, not the decathlon, and then hammer thrower Deanna Price. And Pan Am Sports is going to have more than 1,900 hours of coverage at panamsportschannel.org. Apparently, this is all going to be free to watch. So
1: I know what we're going to be doing. Test event for us. (laughs) Get in training, man. Start carrying that 20-pound backpack as you watch. Ooh la la.
0: Yes, Paralympic tickets are officially on sale. This past weekend was Paralympic Day. It sounded like a big event again with thousands and thousands of people down in downtown Paris looking at Paralympic sport, trying it out. Our very own Matt Stutzman was there to give demonstrations and meet people.
1: Hopefully, tickets sell well have not seen I hope yet. So. Yeah, I haven't seen any results yet. They haven't published any sales numbers as of mm-hmm. this week, but we'll see.
0: Hopefully. And then the it, it has been decided that the flame for the torch and the torch relay will be lit in Stoke Mandeville from now on. Apparently they've just generated a flame. I I couldn't remember what Tokyo was, but they did not have the same process that the olympics have where the flame is lit in greece but now they will always light it from stoke mandeville where that is the birthplace of the paralympic movement
1: i mean it makes sense with what the point of the flame is the idea is you light it in greece for the olympics because that was the birthplace Mm -hmm. lit the fire and then stoke mandeville being for the paralympics it it seems so obvious like why haven't they been doing this all along it's great wonderful Been a while since we heard that one. And this one makes
0: me really mad. I, I know why, because the athlete in question had no choice in the matter. China has been dropped from the Paris 2024 eventing competition after a horse tested positive at the Olympic qualifier in Ireland in June. The horse's name is Chico. It is ridden by Alex Hua Tiang. And they tested positive for Altrinagest, which suppresses or synchronizes estrus in horses. That is unfortunate. China, I believe, came in second, but in- Japan is going to replace China at Paris. And w- we didn't mention this last week because there was really no news to report, but they did have the, cast did have the hearing for Camilla Valieva.
1: And guess what? Russia wasn't We're- ready. We're putting it <laughs> off. Because we'd like to just have this thing going on for 475 years. Right. So apparently they didn't have enough time to put their case together or whatever together. They requested
0: a, a delay and it's been put off again until November sometime. See, now
1: the horse had no choice. The mm-hmm. horse is innocent in this situation. Camilla mm-hmm. Valieva, putting things in her own body. But she's not responsible. <laughs> This was exciting news from LA
0: 2028. The new sports at LA 2028 that would like to add to the Olympic program has been announced. This is big. These are a surprise. Right? As always, many, many sports are clamoring to get on the Olympic program. So LA would like to choose flag football, baseball, softball, lacrosse, squash, and cricket. And that would be a 2020 format of cricket, which is a much shorter game. Out will be break They did not get included again, so this is going to be like karate. Paris will be one and done unless Brisbane decides to pick them up again.
1: I am not a fan of this one and done thing with these. The host gets to choose the five sports and... Then you've got these sports like breaking, like softball was in and now it's out and now it's back in where how can a sport really build its grassroots if at any moment it's in or out?
0: I thought that as well in a way, because with demonstration sports, you had the, well, we're going to hope that it gets in the games.
1: You knew where you stood.
0: Yeah, this is a hope. We are applying or this is our our test for you. Please accept us in. And then this now the host city gets to choose the sports really does mean are we in? Are we out? It's almost world games in a way when they much so when they drop sports and add sports and you don't know where you stand. That makes it very difficult for federations and for athletes to know. What? Because you would think that dance sport would hope more people would get involved with dance sport or break-in because they're seeing it in the Olympics. And maybe they will get a bump because people will see it and want to do it. But the idea that they could become an Olympian is now going to be out of the question again until 2032, maybe. And I saw an interesting
1: uh, article talking about this, and I'm sorry, I don't have the reference, but saying that these host city choices have become a way to build participation in the sport instead of in the old days with demonstration sports, you had to prove that the sport was widely played to get in. So it's kind of reversing the sport is growing organically and then you get into the Olympics. Whereas this is saying, let's put it in as this host city choice and that will make it grow. Because honestly, flag football, I know. And I mean, I, I watched it during the
0: World Games, did not love it, except for the Italian quarterback who had the playbook in his back, his waistband that I enjoyed. And then the women's, the Mexican women's team who were so fast and they were really fun to watch. But the play was lopsided. There weren't that many countries
1: involved. They have five years to get more teams involved, but that's not a whole lot. Not much. Other thing that I saw pointed out, these are all team sports. What's happening with the athlete total quota? That's a big one. And squash would be the odd man
0: out for individual sports. But yeah, what are we doing with this athlete quota? And again, I've read this as well. One little point, and I don't have the reference would they be able to define athlete quota as the number of the athletes in the village at any given time? So. Be in the village, get out of the village. See, but we that see.
1: takes away the whole point of the Olympics being this unifying thing. Because One of the things that we've talked about with so many athletes was going to the opening, going to the closing, staying in the village beyond your competition, meeting all these people from different sports, going and watching, and being a team all together, cheering for Team USA, for example, in any sport, and yet. We're taking this away for this. But softball's there. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) I knew you would be happy with that. I love the fact that softball is in. It'll be interesting to see what baseball comes up with. Because again, we don't have major league players unless something magical happens, which I doubt. But that's baseball is one of those where you don't have a ton of, and softball too, there's not a whole lot of country representation, it feels like. I would say that if we went to the world rankings, we'd be pleasantly surprised at how many countries are participating in baseball and softball. At the level, we don't know.
1: Well, the one thing that's really good about softball that we're seeing actually in gymnastics this past week at the uh, Gymnastics World Championships, you're seeing a lot of new countries being represented at the high level of gymnastics because they're competing at American universities. And because the style of gymnastics has changed, the age is getting older. We're seeing a lot of more college gymnasts going back and forth between elite gymnastics and college gymnastics. So you have, I believe she's from the University of Nebraska, who's going to be representing Algeria. Oh, right, right. So you have a lot of that cross-pollination happening. And softball is very much that. So you have Canadian players, you have Puerto Rican players, you have Mexican players all coming to American universities and playing softball. So I know that's regional. That's only right there. But Mm -hmm. I'm sure that happens with a lot of other countries, especially in South America. Those players come to United States universities and softball is a big university sport.
0: It'll be interesting to see what the reaction is at the session so what's coming up is the IOC session which is going to be this coming week in Mumbai cricket getting announced at Mumbai I'm sure that will be a big deal but I don't know if this is just going to be a rubber stamp or if there's going to be some discussion about really can we add five sports four of which are team sports Because even if you take out modern pentathlon and you take out weightlifting, which you may not because weightlifting is getting some praise for the overall it has given itself. Boxing. Well, they've already said that boxing is not going to be out. Inside the Games had a big article about boxing and Bach talking about that because the International Boxing Association is the first ever Federation to get kicked out of the Olympic movement. So they don't have a whole lot of experience doing that. But they did say that boxing should be safe for LA 2028. They didn't want to hurt the athletes. But they also have said that we cannot continue to run this at the Olympics. That's not a long-term solution. They've also said that world boxing, which is a splinter association, is nowhere near ready to be recognized. And that's, it's this very tiny, there's not that many countries in it. You need a lot more global representation in order to be recognized as the federation for the Olympics. And yeah, we don't know about modern pentathlon. Those will be some of the decisions I think at the session. Will we see these sports that are on the bubble and weren't officially announced in the program Will they be in? Will they be out?
1: Right. A modern pentathlon and weightlifting nowhere near account for the kind of numbers that all these team sports would cover. Right. Even weightlifting where there's lots of classes and there's lots of different forms there, but still it no. Yeah. But softball's there. <laughs> The
0: Guardian has an interesting article about the negotiations for the sports that got put on the final shortlist because, as you remember, they were supposed to be announced like a month ago. And apparently there was a lot of heated discussion, it sounds like. Discussion seems like a very diplomatic word, but it sounds like it was very tense on the back and forth between the organizing committee of LA 2028 and the IOC to come up with this final list.
1: And there's always the tension between the United States and the USOPC and the IOC.
0: Yes. You know, and
1: Americans <laughs> we want to do it our way. Mm-hmm. And the IOC says, "No, we're the grown-up in the room. You have to do it our way." So there's that piece to it. Apparently the IOC really
0: wants cricket on the program. And LA 2028 really wanted flag football and baseball softball on the program. Neither side cared what the other one wanted.
1: <laughs> no surprise.
0: And there, as, as the Guardian says, and this is a really interesting article by Sean Ingle, neither side had much interest in the other's preferences. There were bitter arguments over money and numbers too, and relations became so strained that a decision was pushed back by nearly a month. Yet in the end, an uneasy peace was brokered. And this is why... That decision, that sports decision, was supposed to come out last month, way before the session in Mumbai. And apparently this is how it happened.
1: And we hate when it's so laid bare to us that the decisions are being made because of money. And this article is saying the sports that get in and don't get in, it's purely in money. So Tomas Bach said, I want cricket because the Olympics as a brand doesn't have a foothold in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, the epicenter of cricket. So let's get it on the Olympic program. And that'll build the Olympic brand in these countries. I don't think so, to be honest. You don't think so? Here's why I don't think so. Because I think people in those countries will tune in for cricket. And that is all. It'll just be another big cricket tournament but that the Olympic brand... I don't think that that will translate into watching a whole bunch of other sports or all of a sudden becoming fans of the Olympics just because of cricket. They will become fans of Olympic cricket and those players, like in basketball, that that go. And it may build cricket as a sport. I can see why cricket wants in. It's going to build their sport internationally, but I don't see that translating backwards. Interesting, because then... With that
0: argument, I wonder what the viewers of Rugby Sevens are like. Did they get a bump in viewership from rugby fans who did not watch the rest of the Olympics? And same with basketball. When you put it, I mean, basketball's been in for a long time, but when you took out the amateur element and had the dream teams, does that make a difference to who watches
1: Olympic basketball? Well, I think it makes a difference as to who watches Olympic basketball. I don't think it makes a difference as if you get people who only watch basketball to watch other Olympic sports. I wonder if it is
0: a way you package it and you slide other sports into cricket coverage or you put cricket coverage heavy on your evening wrap up. I guess that would be how would they televise these sports in those countries? And I mean, India is interesting because a giant audience, of course, they are field hockey mad, but India hasn't done as well as it used to do back around when India got its independence from Great Britain. But you think the amount of fuss that was made over Abhinav Bindra when he won his gold medal and the amount of fuss made over... Neeraj Chopra, when he won the javelin gold at Tokyo 2020, there is interest in the Olympics. I wonder if it's a chicken and egg thing where broadcasters in the, the country are going, well, we don't get a whole lot of medals, so we don't want to spend a whole lot of money on television rights or broadcasting rights versus there's probably interest there and there's no way for them to see it. Because when you do have these gold
1: medalists, the outpouring is huge. They're heroes. And one of the things that that article from The Guardian, who heavily quotes from our friend Michael Payne, talked about is now the IOC can charge a fortune for Indian television rights. Whereas before, they were trying to give them away. (laughs) They couldn't get much for them.
0: Yeah. So that's going to be interesting to see
1: how that plays out for LA. We'll have to keep an eye on that because it's interesting. And follow the money and that makes me mad. I'm not so naive but I just I want to keep my five-colored glasses on. <laughs> sometimes and say we're putting these sports in because the sports are growing.
0: Right. And flag football also interesting where Michael Payne's saying really why are you putting in this in the games except for the fact that you've got the NFL in the Amer- in America, the National Football League putting a ton of money, trying to make flag football a thing. And who is going to do your promotion for you? The National Football League. They will spend their money helping you promote this at the Olympics. So you're getting some free promotion, hopefully,
1: out of this deal. And then vice versa, where the NFL, will NBC, the American broadcaster, can then advertise its NFL coverage during the Olympics during those flag football games.
0: Right, because that will be just ahead of football season in America. <sighs> Strange bedfellows, right? The other interesting part in this article are the tensions about how the IOC was really pushing urban sports for Paris and no breakdancing, which is probably the most urban,
1: urban sport of them all. I mean, when we talked to Sonny Cho, it was, you need a piece of cardboard, maybe you don't, there's no equipment, there's no place you need, there's no studio. You can literally just go outside in your sneakers and start break dancing or not even outside. I mean, you need like a five by five space and music. Mm-hmm. So it,
0: it'll be interesting to see if you're also talking about geographic holes. Squash fills a geographic hole because Egypt is very big in squash. So you fill in a section of Africa. And with the sport that they are currently excelling in, and maybe you draw that part of the world in too. Lacrosse is something that's been trying to get back in. You can see the ties to America in that. That makes sense. And you see the ties with baseball, softball.
1: That's the only one that's so obvious to me because it's such... Wasn't something like 80% of the... I'm making the statistic up. But there was some ridiculously high statistic of the connection between the american softball team in tokyo and california either they were from california they went to california universities they had trained in california like there was a really strong connection between california and the american softball team like it's the well, center of american softball so i well, can't we'll have to look for that. that we'll look for that laura berg you have to clear that up for us <laughs> So what will this be for Laura if she gets to coach again, like Olympics 423?
0: Perhaps, perhaps. So it'll be interesting to see how this goes down at the IOC session in Mumbai. And if it just gets a blanket ratification or if there's going to be some discussion over these events. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in uh, the athlete quota for sure. Well, that is a happy note to end on. And we will call it a week. Let us know what you think of Sports Federation organization.
1: You can contact us on X and Instagram at Flame Alive Pod. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208 352 6348. That's 208 Flame It. Be sure to join the keep the flame alive podcast group on Facebook and don't forget to get our weekly newsletter filled with other fun stories about this week's episode. You can sign up for that at flamealivepod.com. Next week, we will be talking with
0: Dr. Michelle Donnelly about gender equity for Paris 2024 and what that really means. And we will also have news and uh, from the IOC session in Mumbai. We'll be looking out for what is really interesting coming out of that session so thank you so much for listening and until next time keep the
1: flame alive